Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Are you ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Werewolf of Rannoch by Ellen Scrysmore. It was a chill night in late January. The snow lay thick upon the ground. The wind howled among the trees, and the full moon shone down on a desolate wilderness. Half a mile from the little village of Guver, a village situated in the very heart of the desolation of Rannoch, stood the little unpretentious house tenanted by Dr. Chisholm and his sister. It was a wild, dreary spot in which to live and the mysteries and horrors which had fallen upon the little community were in keeping with the weirdness of the place itself. For some months, Guver had suffered from an evil visitation, to put it from the words of the wee free minister. Cattle and sheep had been found dead in their pens, bloody and torn. Horses in their stalls had not escaped, pigs in their sties, dogs in their kennels, chickens in their runs, had all suffered, and the manner of the kill was always the same. The throat of the victim was lacerated and bleeding, and the bowels torn from the body were left partly devoured. "'It's a killer,' said the moorland folk. "'It's a killer! Keep your cattle under lock and key!' For a killer is a dread thing among shepherds and cotters of the north. By a killer... They mean a sheepdog that has gone mad for blood, a dog that can no longer be trusted to look after the sheep, but one that will steal away as soon as darkness falls and will slay the very creatures he is trained to guard. But when children disappeared, and grown men and women, and their bodies were afterwards found torn and bleeding, lacerated with savage tooth marks, the people looked at each other timidly and kept behind bolted doors at night, and prayed with the minister and the kirk on the Sabbath that the visitation might be lifted from them. And it was the Reverend Evan McIntosh himself who wrote to Sheila Carrera and asked her to come and investigate the mystery that surrounded Guver, for he had known her since she was a little girl and had heard of her marvelous successes. She had accepted and Miss Chisholm had offered to put her up as the manse was only a bachelor establishment. So Sheila arrived at the little highland Claxon, situated in the heart of remote Rannoch Moor, and set to work on perhaps the most gruesome mystery she had ever solved. The days passed, and she was still unsuccessful. Each morning she chose a new theory which to work upon, and each night had to abandon it as being either impossible or absurd. There was certainly the element of the unreal about the visitation. Crofters averred they saw a shaggy shape with eyes like burning coal, slinking about the hillside at the full moon, and always after the creature had been seen there was a kill. Children were kept indoors at night and came screaming from the bedroom, saying that they had seen the face of a wolf at the window. The whole countryside was in a ferment of terror, and Sheila felt powerless to cope with it. 
She followed up clue after clue that proved useless, and all her nerves were on edge. Dr. Chisholm, her host, a very cheery soul of sixty-odd years, gave her all the help in his power. But he was openly skeptical about her theory that the killer was possessed by a supernatural element. I am sure we shall find that it is simply some mad dog loose on the country, Miss Carrell. What else can it be? Have you not heard of werewolves, Doctor? she asked quietly. Yes, he replied. But I don't think I'm quite sure in my own mind as to what they're supposed to be. They are men with dual personalities, Doctor, who have the power to change themselves into the form of a wolf or some other carnivorous animal. My dear Miss Carrera, smiled the Doctor genially, and ran his hand through his snowy hair. Oh, I believe it, Doctor. It is another form of the Jekyll and Hyde theory. That's all, only a much worse form. The astral spirit leaves the body in a sleeping condition, while it assumes an animal shape itself. Thus free, it roams round the world at will, and lengthens its existence by drinking fresh, warm blood drawn from a new kill. Shelley. That is quite a medieval superstition, Miss Carrera," protested the doctor again. "We are on prosaic twentieth century, and..." But Sheila refused to answer. She had been in touch with the unreal too often to doubt. She knew the power of the spirits from the other world, the tangibility of the elemental. She had come across the very essence of witchcraft. Nothing was impossible. And that night, as she stood at the garden gate after dinner, and enjoyed the glory of a white earth under a full moon, she caught sight of a shadowy gray shape creeping among the trees. It was her first glimpse of the killer. Without a thought of fear, she bounded after it, hatless, coatless, breathless. She followed it. It turned its head. Its eyes gleamed viciously, and it snarled angrily. Sheila pulled a branch of white thorn, a protection against witchcraft, and held it high above her head. The wolf leapt at her, but as it touched the tree, it whined, slunk around the corner, and when Sheila moved a second later, it had vanished from sight. There was no place in which it could hide, yet it had gone completely, and the only living thing in sight was a man who was walking quickly into the distance. She hurried after him. But the space between them never seemed to lessen. His walk, his figure, his manner seemed familiar to her. But there suddenly came a flash, and when she opened her eyes, he too was gone. She walked back slowly and ran into Doctor Chisholm. "I've proved my theory," she said with quiet concentration. "The visitation is a werewolf. I've seen it tonight." And I must now sit to work to discover who it is that is the menace of this little place. I believe some men have no knowledge that they possess this power, and while their astral spirit is absent, they are asleep and unconscious of their evil doings. This werewolf is different. I'm convinced he knows his own powers. What makes you think that? Because. 
Just now, he appeared as a wolf. A second later, the animal had gone. But a man had taken his place. I tried to reach the man. At first, I didn't realize that the change had taken place. But when I drew near, he used his magical powers, blinded me with a light for a moment, and when I could see, he too had vanished. Have you any idea who this this man is? Not the slightest at present, although he seemed familiar to me. I find I am unable to place him, but I shall work hard to discover him, and then... She left the sentence unfinished, and the kindly doctor tucked his arm through hers and led the way back to the house. But although Sheila saw the ominous gray shape many times, she was never able to track it to its lair. Will you watch with me tonight, doctor? She asked one day. I want to try and discover the direction from which the werewolf comes. Let us hide in the bushes by the churchyard. We shall be safe on consecrated ground. So they waited that night at the edge of the little graveyard, a spot eerie and forlorn. Get behind that tombstone, said the doctor genially, and I'll wait here. But I can't see you, doctor. Never mind. I can see you. So they waited. The moon was hidden beneath heavy clouds, and the wind was piercing. Heavy flakes of snow cut Sheila's face and made it smart. Suddenly, as the clock to the church tower boomed twelve, there came the sound of ghostly laughter. <laughs> laughter that seemed to come from the regions of the damned. Sheila felt her blood run cold, and as she watched, she heard the bang of hounds in the distance, and she knew them to be the ghostly hounds of the wicked dead. Nearer they drew, and nearer. Sheila watched their approach and counted them mechanically. Five, six, seven, eight and they strained at a leash that was held taut by their invisible master. And even as they passed her, Sheila heard the crack of a whip and saw the quiver of the flesh that was flayed. Yet of the whip itself there was nothing to be seen. As they passed, leaving a luminous trail behind them, she saw the gray, hulking shapes speed swiftly by. There was the snapping of hungry jaws, a cry of pain, and the ghostly pack only numbered seven. They had passed, and all was still and quiet. Doctor! Doctor! Don't say now that you don't believe, said Sheila. Doctor! Doctor! she cried again. Dr. Chisholm! Are you there? And a frightened note crept into her voice. But the genial doctor answered her, his voice grave and low. Forgive me, Miss Carrero. I scarcely realized you were speaking. I was carried away by the scene. Sheila left her hiding place and crossed to him. He was rising from the shelter of a large windbush, and the girl cried out in dismay. Oh, doctor, thank God you're safe. Why, what is the matter, Miss Carrera? Do you realize you have not been on consecrated ground at all? You are on the path that separates the graveyard from the flower garden that surrounds it. 
He gave a wry little smile. Then it was your presence that no doubt saved me from harm, my dear. Then one day, Sheila saw the werewolf lurking in the meadow near the Chisholm's byre. With the protecting white thorn spray, she tracked it, but it disappeared behind the building itself. And as she turned the corner, she came face to face with Dr. Chisholm's partner. They passed with a curt, Good night, said Sheila, though no more about the incident. A week later it was, however, brought back to her mind. She was waiting again in the churchyard, but this time alone. Midnight boomed out, and the killer passed. But even as he vanished from sight, the doctor's partner appeared from the copse at the side of the road. This time she passed him without speaking. For the moment her eyes lighted upon him, a wild possibility suggested itself to her mind, and she felt at last that she had a clue, that at last she was on the right track. When she had first met Dr. Chisholm's partner, she had taken a little dislike to him. He was a Dane, Olaf Silmak by name. A dark, taciturn man of late middle age. She felt sorry he was an inmate of Nak Nurei, as the Chisholm House was called. She never spoke to him more than courtesy demanded of her. She read craft in his expression, cruelty in his tight, thin lips, and shivered at the touch of his damp, flaccid hand. And now... Well, she hoped that the denouement was not far off. The killer was always abroad when the moon was full, and tonight she would try and track the malefactor to its lair. Well, said Dr. Chisholm genially, as she said goodnight, you have not discovered the identity of our unpleasant visitor yet. Not yet, but I think I'm at last on the right track. The old man's eyes twinkled, and he gave an exaggerated little shudder. Oh, you modern women, you dabble in science and medicine, you dabble in politics and law, and now you dabble in the occult. What else is there left for mere man? Well, doctor, you'll be glad if this mysterious horror is satisfactorily cleared up, won't you? Of course I shall, my dear young lady, and so will Mary. He nodded affectionately at his sister. Why, Mary scarcely ever sleeps a wink at nights now, do you? Miss Chisholm, a delicate spinster, many years her brother's junior, looked up flutteringly. Indeed, Miss Carrera, I have not, if it were not for Dr. Silmack's kindness to me, his cheery presence and the wonderful tonic he had made up for me for my nerves i am sure i would have broke down long ago the suspense is terrible not to know from one minute to the next whether the killer will make his visitation here sheila looked grave you like dr silmack don't you miss chisholm the little lady flushed "'It is quite a secret. My brother, of course, knows. "'But if Dr. Silmack is successful in a big experiment he is making, "'we are to be married.' "'Sheila was unable to look into the candid eyes of the little young old lady. "'I 
I hope he, I hope he will be successful. She murmured, and then she not only surprised herself by bending over the spinster and kissing her on the forehead, saying, "But above all, I hope you will be happy." When she reached her room, she muttered angrily to herself, "If I am right in my conjectures, I shall bring unhappiness on that poor little soul who trusts him. Yet better one heart broken than distress and desolation on many." It was a bitterly cold night, and she wrapped herself up very warmly, put on snowshoes, and pulled a woolen cap close about her ears. She loaded a little automatic revolver and carefully opened a French window that led from her room to the outside stair, so prevalent in Scottish houses. Quickly, she descended it and crept into the shadow of a holly bush and remained waiting and waiting. It was an eerie night. The moon was brilliant, but the huge rings round it foretold of stormy weather. The wind moaned and whistled, and Sheila drew her cloak close about her. She looked at her watch, and saw that it wanted but a few seconds to midnight. When she suddenly stiffened and her nostrils quivered, she had caught the scent of her prey. There was a crunch, crunch on the frozen snow. And a great gray beast slunk around the corner of the house. His nose was high in the air, and his red eyes gleamed banefully. The foam dropped from his slobbering jowl, and the steam rose from his heated body. She raised her revolver, and the beast seemed to scent danger, for with a whimper of fear, it slunk into the shadows and vanished from sight. Quickly, Sheila followed the direction it had taken. Among the trees, she saw a gray shape flitting. It was the malevolent beast she knew to be responsible for the killings. Night after night, she had waited for it, tracked it among the peat hags and morasses of the moor, had followed it along the banks of lochs and peaty tarns, across heathery hummocks and granite boulders. But always the uncanny brute had evaded her. But now, she had seen it come from the shadow of Nock Norui. And she felt that the doctor's house was indeed the lair of the werewolf, a thing loathsome, treacherous, vile. And even as she sped after it, she shook with anger at the thought of the gentle spinster, who had given her heart to Olaf Silmak, the Wolf Man. Sheila had no doubts now; she had been suspicious of him from the first, but now she had to prove that he and the killer were one. As she crossed the dreary wasteland, she heard a choking cry of pain, a cry that was hideous in the silence of the night. Still on she went, and at last came on the body of a stag. It was the beautiful creature that had cried out in its death agony. Its throat was completely gone; its body ripped open; its entrails partly devoured. Drops of crimson stained the whiteness of the snow, and Sheila followed the bloody track. On it went across the uneven moorland, and at last came to a sudden stop. And Sheila saw the marks on the snow where the brute had wiped its jaws after its ghoulish meal. The girl found she had journeyed to the edge of the moor. The spot was unfamiliar to her. A rugged mountain rose precipitously from the side of a melancholy loch. Her quest was done for the night. 
she could trail the beast no further, and she hurried back to knock Norui. And even as she came inside of the house, she caught a glimpse of a hulking gray form crossing the front lawn. It seemed unconscious of the watchful eyes upon it, and stealthily crept beneath the shelter of a half-opened lobby window. For a second or two, it remained quite quiet. Then, even as the girl watched it, it disappeared, and a moment later, she saw the window shut and heard it latch from the inside. Next day, as soon as breakfast was over, she retraced her steps of the previous night. The body of the stag was still in the same place, and the blood stains, faint and blurred, still directed her. At the edge of the lock, she hesitated and wondered which way to turn. A quarter way up the mountainside, a huge lichen-covered boulder jutted out. At its base grew thick bushes of stunted holly, and Sheila's practiced eye told her that some massive body had crept hastily beneath the shelter of the low branches. She climbed swiftly up to it and peered beneath. There was an opening at the foot of the rock, and fearless as ever, she crept into the passageway. The way proved to be very narrow, and ran perhaps thirty feet down into a large cavern. As Sheila entered it, she gave a cry of excited pleasure. She had found the wolf man's lair! The place was full of strange devices and mechanical appliances, the use of which she did not know. High up the rocky wall was a tiny ledge. Quickly she tried to reach it. It was an arduous task, but she was sure-footed, and the rocky wall gave her a foothold, and she reached it safely. It was in reality the mouth of a tiny cave, and she could stay there in safety and watch all unseen anyone who might be down below. It commanded a perfect view of the whole cavern. She hurried home and rested, preparing for her nocturnal adventure. But she was not destined to go out that night. A sudden storm came on, and the rain came down in torrents, and she knew it be physically impossible to walk the five miles alone. She went to bed early, however, and quivered with indignation as she saw Dr. Selmack bend tenderly over the gentle spinster, who looked with such trust in his eyes. He was a werewolf, a man whose astral spirit took on the form of a wolf and prowled at night in search of prey, a man who left his body in his chamber while his real self gorged on cannibalistic feasts. It was terrible, horrible, abhorrent. Sheila was restless in her sleep. Her dreams were uneasy, and she tossed from side to side in the large canopy bed. Suddenly she realized she was awake and listened. There was a soft pad padding outside her door, and she heard the snuffling of an animal, followed by a tiny whimper. Now, there were no animals at Nok Norui, neither cat, nor dog, nor bird. The house possessed no pets. She lit her candle and looked around quickly, and gave a sigh of relief as she saw the branch of whitethorn by her side. She caught it up in her hand and opened her door. There was nothing outside. She felt a little mystified. She expected an encounter with the ghostly creature himself and was a little disappointed. She shut her door and listened. Again she heard the whimper. 
This time she crept behind the door and waited. Slowly the door opened, yet neither handle turned nor lock clicked. It seemed to glide though rather than open, and through the crack in the hinges she saw the wolf outside. There was no mistaking it. Its little red eyes gleamed with hatred, and its tongue lolled out of its mouth hungrily. It entered her bedchamber. Round and round it stalked, and she, ever watchful, held the white thorn high above her head. It was a mighty duel of wits and strength. The great gray shape crouched at her feet. Its breath was fetid and vile, and its coat gave forth a sulfurous vapor. Its murderous little eyes seemed to laugh as it saw the effort Sheila had to keep her arms above her head. How long they faced each other, she never knew. She felt at any moment she must drop her arms from weariness. The stench of the creature was unbearable. The fumes from its body choked and nauseated her. She saw her little revolver on the dressing table, but was unable to reach it. Her eyes grew dim, her head ached. Then suddenly the wolf was gone, and a pure white kitten clawed at her skirts and mewed pitilessly. Its foot was hurt, and in the prettiest way imaginable it lifted up its little paw. For a moment only Sheila hesitated. Then, with a swift movement, she slashed viciously at the pretty little creature with her weapon of white thorn, and the same instant reached for her revolver. When she looked again, there was no pretty white kitten, but a hideous gray creature that whined savagely and licked the blood that oozed from a jagged wound across its body. At that moment, Sheila fired, and with a cry, the wolf leapt out the door. She realized she'd missed it. But had she, after all? Dr. Silmack appeared at her door, and there was blood upon his hand. What is the matter, Miss Carrera? I heard a noise, and I came to see what it was. At the moment, you must have fired for see. The bullet just grazed my little finger. Sheila gazed at him in horror. Then she touched the great shape after all. She thought she'd missed. But was there not such a thing as repercussion? If she wounded the wolf, would not the man also suffer? If she killed the wolf, would not the man die in a like manner? Although she had leveled the revolver at the wolf, Olaf Silmak had received the discharge. It was indeed curious, but she did not mean to show her hand yet. Pray accept my apology, she said sweetly. I thought I saw a burglar. I woke from a bad dream. I do hope I have not hurt you much. Nothing to worry about, Miss Carrera. Go back to bed and sleep better. Good night. Good night. But Sheila did not intend delaying further, and directly after dinner the next night she slipped out of her room and started to walk to the wolfman's cave. She had plenty of time. It was still well before nine. She reached the place in safety, climbed the rocky wall, and waited. It was very dreary in that place of fear, and she wished she had told Dr. Chisholm of her discovery and invited him to accompany her. Time dragged. 
She must have fallen asleep, for suddenly she realized the place was lighted by huge torches that were fitted in brackets on the wall. In the center of the cavern, a brazier burned. Its flames blue and red. A hooded man in a red gown covered in strange hieroglyphs stood over it, muttering in a monotone as he sprinkled a powder in the glowing coals that caused the flames to shoot about three feet, assuming the colors of the rainbow. A faint cry came from a darkened corner, and Sheila gazed in horror as she saw the magician stoop down and lift up in his arms a tiny, naked child of perhaps two years. The plump little body squirmed and struggled with fear, but the man held it deftly while he anointed it with oils and sweet-smelling spices. Suddenly he held a knife aloft, and Sheila buried her face in her hands. There was an agonizing cry, a cry that ended with a muffled, choking moan and silence. The girl felt too sick to watch, but the scene had its fascinations as well as its horrors, and tightly clasped in her hand was her loaded revolver. She would make no mistake tonight. But the wizard had not yet finished his revels. He dragged a stool in front of the brazier, and on it he placed two quaint figures. Subconsciously, Sheila realized they were familiar. She peered cautiously down from her hiding place and realized that one was dressed like Miss Chisholm, while the other was wrapped around in a black hood, the exact counterpart of the one she was wearing at the moment. The figure below raised the effigy of Miss Chisholm, and in a low voice called on Satan the Mighty, and Sheila knew she was looking at a corp cree. She did not know that the practice still existed. The cult of fashioning a body in clay, and by aid of ghastly spells and prayers to the devil, working harm through its medium upon the person it represented. The sorcerer held the little clay figure in one hand, and with a long, pincer-shaped instrument, twisted off the right hand. And as he did so, a cry of pain came from the effigy, and a second later, Sheila heard Miss Chisholm's voice cry out, It hurts! It hurts! Then the image was flung contemptuously aside, and the man picked up the one dressed in the likeness of Sheila. He lifted the corpcree in his hand, and with muffled words of hatred, bent over it for a moment before he plunged the entire left arm into the flames. As the limb was shriveled up by the furnace, it uttered a wail of agony. But Sheila had turned white and deadly faint, and she realized she was suffering the pains of the burns. She hesitated no longer, and fired twice in quick succession at the monster below. A piercing shriek broke the stillness of the night, and the man below had vanished. But Sheila saw a gray shape lift up its muzzle in the air and howl dismally, and even as it did so, it too disappeared from her ken. Sheila, trembling and terror-stricken, crept home in the gray morning. Her arm was painful, but she had bound it up with strips torn from her petticoat. In the dim light, she saw great blisters had risen from the inflamed flesh. She was worn out and tired and hoped to creep into her room unseen. 
but she found the house was full of excitement and trouble. Miss Chisholm was in the dining room, weeping convulsively. Dr. Olaf Silmack was bending over her and soothing her. Wait, what is the matter? asked Sheila. My, my brother, sobbed the woman. He is dead. Shot twice through the heart, Miss Carrera. I heard the sound of a revolver fired twice in quick succession, and when I rushed into Dr. Chisholm's room, he was quite dead. Sheila looked full into Olaf Silmack's eyes and read the truth there. May I see him? she asked quietly. It was Dr. Silmack himself who led her into the darkened death chamber. The face of Robert Chisholm had lost its benignity, its contour. The lips were drawn back and revealed sharp fangs, fangs that scarcely seemed to belong to a human creature. There will be no more killings now, Miss Carrera, said Olaf Silmack softly. You knew, breathed Sheila. The man nodded. I suspected it some time ago. I've been watching. Forgive me. Oh, forgive me, cried the girl. But Olaf Silmack never knew what she meant. The end. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, please visit my Patreon. We have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dread Time listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.